0: I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
1: And I'm Tom. Just loving the state these days. Bionic. Bionic.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh, boy, are you. I, I, I hear awesome, about it all man. the time. Yeah, it's good to be alive.
1: TSA and. lady. I, I, I tell you what,
0: it is good I for you. our listeners because we have uh, an old friend back of the show who's one of our favorites of our listeners as well as ourselves. Uh, this week we're talking again with Will Grigg, the host of the Pro Libertati blog, uh, talking about uh, discerning the biblical perspective on the separation of church and state. Uh, this is a topic that uh, uh, Tom and I both feel is of keen interest uh, in a critical issue for the American Christian community right now and is really at the, the heart and the crux of many of the things that we're struggling with today, politically and otherwise. And uh, I just want to say, Will Gregg, I want to welcome you back to the Future Quake Radio Show.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure and a blessing to be with you.
0: Well, I know you're in high demand, and you 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 hang out now with a uh, much more uh, stratified air of people that you're with this time rather <laughs> than I think ourselves. Officially cool, it's really. Yeah, you know. and so it, we take it as a as a real honor uh, to be able to have you here. Uh, let me just say a few words about you, if you don't mind, to some of our new new people here. Um, not only you're one of the most popular, uh, and and actually being one of our rare recurring guests on our show. But also someone who we consider a true real-life heroic figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you seem to have made your mission uh, via your must-read pro-libertate pro blog, or is it pro-libertate?
2: pro, libertate? It's
0: pro libertate. Okay, good. I Correct. got get it right. Pro-libertate
2: the, the first time, yeah. Okay,
0: pro-libertate blog and your other writings, uh, such as on LouRockwell.com, uh, that that your mission has been to look out for the little man and those who are powerless and oppressed by the state, both in America and around the world. Uh, and you've been an intelligent and wise voice of conscience for Americans and the church here specifically. Uh, anyone who's read your very sophisticated and enlightened journalistic prose uh, would not be surprised to discover that you were the marquee writer for the New American magazine of the John Birch Society for many years, uh, but took a stand on principle that uh, ended your association, and you and your family have endured many personal sacrifices as a result but whose analysis in the meantime has resulted in appearances in places such as Andrew Napolitano's Freedom Watch show on the Fox Network, as well as your welcome appearances in venues such as ours. Uh, Our topic today uh, on the concept of separation of church and state, going back to the first principles uh, in the Judeo-Christian scriptures and how we're going to approach it today, uh, is such an important and complex topic that we can only perceive one such as yourself as being perceptive enough. With which to have a discussion on something this uh, complex. Uh, t- to begin our discussions in an expedited fashion, uh, could you comment, well, on the guidelines the Bible gives us on how societies and communities of people were to behave uh, prior to the issuance of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law? You know, we, you know, those are very popular notations and history milestones uh, in the passing of God's will and law uh, to a portion of mankind. As you know, many Christians today strongly believe that God intends all governments to obey directly the Ten Commandments. But what guidelines did they have for the thousands of years before they existed?
2: Well, first of all, I really appreciate that detailed and extravagantly kind introduction. That was very (laughs) charitable of you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I, I consider myself to be the honored party every time I'm given this opportunity. With respect to the question of how mankind was supposed to organize society, Before the revelation of the Ten Commandments, as I read the scripture, and bear in mind that as I share my opinions with you, I don't want them to be taken as hard and fast and irrefutable biblical doctrine. I'm simply sharing with you the thoughts of a pilgrim and Mm -hmm. his encounter with God's word.
0: Well, these are these are questions I'm asking your. Opinion. So this wouldn't be exactly. a papal papal bull. It wouldn't be on that card. Exactly. Though. I'm
2: not speaking ex cathedra. Okay. I am, sitting, I am sitting down, but I'm not speaking ex cathedra in the
0: authoritative I, sense. I got it.
2: But the foundation of human society, first of all, is a recognition of God's existence and His sovereignty. That we are special creations, made in His image and imbued with rights that other people have to respect. So. In the sense of political society, or just in the sense of society without the political element, the fundamental moral principle that all men and all governments have to obey is the non-aggression principle. You have to recognize the rights, the property of each other in a relationship of mutual respect and mutual reinforcing deference to those rights and that concept of property. And that is a reflection of the fact, once again, that we are all created in the image of one God who has ordained that law for everybody without exception. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about people who are part of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the church covenant, or those that exist outside that covenant. And there's no advantage, furthermore, in this limited sense, to those who are part of the covenant relationship, as opposed to those who are outside of it. You cannot take advantage of those who are not part of the the covenantal community as some people appear to believe. Mm -hmm. You're governed by that law, and they are protected by that law in the same sense that you are. That's something that existed anterior to the revelation of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And that's a principle that you can see in Abraham's relationship with his kinsmen and with those who are not of his belief or his tribe. He tried to act equitably with all men. He tried to find ways of mitigating conflicts, or reconciling conflicts that didn't involve violence. When he rescued his kinsman, Lot, he did so because it was necessary in order to protect Lot, but he did not enrich himself through violence. Remember, he didn't take so much as a shoelace, lest it be said that the king of Sodom made Abram rich. He wasn't going to partake in the spoils or partake in the product of violence. He preferred to deal equitably in a commercial sense on terms of equitable and mutually beneficial commerce with everybody and i consider that to be part of doing the works of abraham which as believers we are admonished mm-hmm. should be our course of action and all this happened long before the revelation of the ten commandments which made more digestible in a codified sense some of the permutations and applications of that principle with respect to how we're to govern ourselves mm-hmm. and our relationship with each other
0: Well, let me be even more specific. Um, All right. We we hear a lot about uh, something called natural law. Now, that's not as well known in the general Christian community, but amongst the intelligentsia and the freedom community and those who really ponder uh, the state, man, the individual, and their rights, natural law is a common concept. How did this concept uh, that it could be called natural law for society evolve as expressed in Bible history. You, you've mentioned a few examples here. Can you further elaborate on how what now has evolved into a concept that we recognize as natural law evolved even during the days in the history that the Bible covers uh, from Bible references? And I'm not talking about philosophical sources. I know we have a, a philosophical tradition advancing natural law. But just from yeah. biblical examples, and even hinted at later in passages like Romans chapter 1.
2: Well, Romans chapter 1, of course, deals first of all with the reality of God's existence and the reality of the creation of man by God, and the fact that there is written on the hearts of mankind an understanding of that fact, that none is left with a possible exculpation in, when it comes to recognizing the fundamental uh, reality of God's existence and his sovereignty. That we're left without excuse, I believe, is a specific phrase. And so when we're talking about natural law, we're in that realm that some people refer to as the conscience, if you will, there's a moral operating system that God has instilled in each of us. And there are examples all the way back, of course, to the conflict between Cain and Abel, where you have this primeval act of, of lethal violence, uh, one son taking advantage of the other through lethal force, in acting out of covetousness, out of envy, out of all these things that are, from the very beginning, clearly and specifically described in the scripture as evil and is conducing in the direction of damnation, that is to say, destruction or permanent alienation from, from God's love and God's presence, which was, of course, the punishment inflicted on Cain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something which reflects the fact that there is a moral equilibrium that every individual has. Uh, you can read in the first chapter of the book of John where it talks about Uh, the fact that uh, Jesus of Nazareth, long before uh, taking on flesh and dwelling among us, uh, was and is the eternal God, and that uh, he is the light which basically illuminates our understanding of morality and our understanding of truth. That's something that all people have the benefit, from which all people can benefit. Uh, If if that weren't so, we couldn't know... Of God's will. We would not have an impulse to find, learn, and, and to do God's will. Mm-hmm. And throughout uh, the Genesis account, there are examples. Once again, I'm, I'm so struck by the example of Abraham here, the, the friend of God, the one who uh, by faith pleased God, and his conduct in dealing with others. His occasional stumbles and his occasional lapses mm-hmm. uh, all reflect the fact that he was mortal, that he had weaknesses and failings and shortcomings in terms of his own perceptions but in every instance he tried to do that which was just and right he was a just man who sought to do the right thing irrespective of the circumstances. Some of the circumstances he found himself in were pretty grim Mm -hmm. but in terms of how this illustrates natural law Abraham unlike the heroes that you read about in the pagan myths and legends was somebody who prospered by finding favor in God's eyes, by accepting God's will on faith, and doing justly and performing equitably with other men. Mm -hmm. He's a little bit different from Odysseus or Aeneas Mm -hmm. or any of the heroes of pagan antiquity, in that he wasn't a Sharpie. He wasn't somebody who prospered through guile and through strength and by taking
0: advantage of lesser men. Can, uh, uh, can, can I take a crack at this, uh, sure. Will? Just to, I'm not in your league being able to think through this level, but one thing that strikes me is that in the very early pages of history, as expressed in the Bible, we have uh, examples of the sacredness of contract law, or what they yeah, call cove- co- yeah. covenants. Covenants are what they called contracts. Now, this was not just something in between people who were part of... God's uh, string of people that He revealed special information, like Abraham, to. It wasn't just mm-hmm. amongst those that He specially revealed. It was amongst everybody apparently in society, because Abraham had covenants with Philistines, people like Abimelech, other kind of characters, and covenants were a a well known, sophisticated uh, tool of making arrangements, and they were they were. Uh, considered and they were expected by all of society then to be honored mm-hmm. and, and this this is not you know high level theology this was something that throughout quote the pagans as well as the rest of the christ uh, the uh, judeo christian roots uh patriarchs and others it was through, through all of humanity this was common knowledge that people have to obey contracts and yeah. that when you sign it that uh, that's part for the stability of society are, is that contracts are, are honored, which, which is also one of the few elements of natural laws, I understand, that by which civilization maintains its its stability, is by people honoring their agreements and in, in contracts. The other thing is the non-coercive nature of yeah. activity society. Uh, e- even though there were people that were enslaving people and, and you know other things that were going on, and Nimrod certainly comes to mind, the fact yeah. is it was considered a negative attribute. It, someone was considered a, uh, you know, an outlaw or a ruffian or whatever. Uh, it was not, it was not considered a virtue to impose your will on another person, even in the ancient world. And again, not just through the, the lineage up through Abraham and prior, uh, yes. but but throughout all society. So we have an example through through Cain, where where God is expressing to Cain something that the, it's apparent that he should already know that killing and forcing imposing yourself on another person is wrong. And this is before any other detailed revelation we know of has come to mankind. You know, any sophisticated theology, we we, we have an understanding on non-coerciveness, we have an understanding on contracts and other things. So this whole concept of natural law should not be something foreign to the Christian community. It's not something that should be considered extra-biblical. It should not be considered an invention of... Uh, philosophers, you know, of, of modern eras, this is something that's really reflected in the pages of the Bible, is it not? And something well, that that's expressed that all of humanity, not just people who sign up to God's covenants and agreements, but all of humanity adopted and has a, a an equally long tradition as well as we do of honoring these basic principles, and therefore have validity to be able to maintain.
2: Exactly the. Most forceful expression of natural law, and the one that had the greatest impact on the legal thinking of the men who framed the U.S. Constitution, of course, was Blackstone. And Blackstone said that natural law is coeval with divine law, that it's something which is known not merely through reason, but also articulated in revelation. And that takes us back to the point you're making about the behavior of Cain as contrasted with the behavior of Abraham and the other righteous patriarchs there is this moral center of gravity that is part of our creation, our construction. And What happened with the Ten Commandments, rather than introducing these concepts, you had their forceful articulation and division in the text of the the Decalogue in ways that emphasize the fact that we have duties to God which define our duties to each other. That's the fundamental proposition of natural law. One of the things that I wanted to point out in this connection is that the Latin word, which is commonly translated as "barbarian," indomitus means basically "godless." And what that concept connotes to us is the idea of somebody who doesn't recognize that he is subordinate to God's law. In other words, somebody who rebels against natural law, as is defined by Blackstone, and is recognized by John Locke and others who were contemporaries or or near contemporaries of the founding fathers, and If you were a godless man, you were somebody who exalted yourself above others because, to paraphrase, I believe it's the 14th chapter of Isaiah, you seek to dethrone God and install your own appetite, your own will, in the place of God's sovereignty. So the natural law begins with the recognition that we're all created by the same God and we all have the same rights that were part of our creation and the same responsibilities to each other, irrespective of any other consideration. It doesn't matter whether or not people understand salvation in terms of whether they have rights that we have to respect. That's something which was settled for us at the time of our creation. And basically the effort throughout the centuries and millennia that follow to understand those obligations and to apply them in our changing societal circumstances that's where we end up with common law, which is rooted in natural law. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand the Romans chapter 1 template here for morality, then you're not going to get the rest of it right. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of people in the Christian church here in America who sort of bridle over the concept of natural law as if we're dealing with something that is a humanistic or enlightenment-era mm-hmm. artifact. It isn't. It's something that is rooted in and has flourished in the the soil of Christian understanding and biblical mm-hmm. understanding going all the way back to Abraham and before him.
0: It's not in opposition to no. what we understand entirely as progra- compatible. progressive yes. revelation of of Christ in any kind of respect. And, and the reason why I think this is important for Christians to understand is that in the pluralistic society we live in, where we're around people who are... Maybe do not espouse our belief systems, but they're as mm-hmm. equally Americans as we are. They, they've been born and gained just as much citizenship as us. And they may say, I don't buy in to your belief system and all the things it needs to impose on my life. But they really can't say the same thing about natural law. Because there is a millennia of legacy of natural law being practiced, whether it was called that or not, amongst pagan nations, amongst others that required for the stability of society that those basic principles be followed. So uh, natural law, they, they cannot argue that that is shoving religion or particular theological belief down their throats because mm-hmm. just simply from a study of history and ancient sources, natural law was was what all nations, pagan uh, otherwise, at their very best, what they followed under the most stable societies.
2: Well, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, and I grant that C.S. Lewis is somewhat controversial in some circles in the Christian church, refers to this by the Eastern expression, the Tao, T-A-O. And he goes through the ancient texts of a lot of different religious traditions and a lot of different historic uh, and uh, cultural writings from pretty much every civilization that has left a written record. And he illustrates that there is a common moral thread running through all these traditions that reflects the truth of what we read about in the first chapter of Romans, or for that matter, elements of what we read about in Acts chapter 17, the Mars Hill Oration by by Paul, where he talks about the fact that we recognize that we are the creation of a common creator. And he quoted back a pagan text saying one of your own poets said we're his offspring he wasn't saying that that was a scriptural insight Mm -hmm. he's saying that that resonates with the reality that there is a creator and we're all if you will to the extent that we're creations of God to that extent we could be considered the offspring of God not the spiritual offspring not the regenerated offspring that uh, reflect the reality of salvation by way of the atoning blood of Christ that's a different proposition he's saying that we're all human beings and we all have the image of God uh, inscribed in our features, and so we all have those rights, then we have to respect and protect each other's rights to that extent. And C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man said there is this common moral foundation that we can find. They don't understand salvation, but they do understand the reality of mutual and reciprocal rights, and the virtues that define a good and ordered society, and that reflects the truth of what Paul was talking about in in the first chapter of the
0: epistle mm-hmm. of the Romans and if you in in back in these days even in pagan cultures if you drew a wide enough circle a sampling of people that saw cases of isolated exploitation the consensus would be that was wrong uh, yeah. you, you know if you were if you were a, a cohort of some kind of emperor or conqueror you may write very positively of how you conquered this or that tribe or different region but if you look at a larger context of people and they look Outwardly, on that, they would say that was not uh, good for civilization or or humankind itself. So I want to make sure you know we've established again, natural law is something that's been a feature. And really, uh, when when we look at the common Christian arguments about making a nation a Christian nation or following Christian laws, they usually look at the Ten Commandments forward, and that 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 leaves out. You know, roughly 2,500 years of civilization yes, where there had to be some kind of standard to, he- to keep uh, society stable uh, and to keep people from killing each other and, you know, total destruction. And uh, Christians need to acknowledge that and recognize something was practiced by consensus uh, that was universal and that is reasonable and fair to appeal to other people in a pluralistic society to acknowledge. And it is something. Uh, that is consistent with God and, and His will, yeah, as expressed that, in Scripture.
2: That is not a negligible trunk of human history, and so that's very important. But right. the other point I'd like to make in this context is we have to reverse engineer what it says once again in the first chapter of Romans. Here, the whole point of the Book of Romans is to explain our predicament as sinners and how we're going to how we're going to avoid hell. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the whole point of the Book of Romans. The message, of course, is this happens. Uh, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work that he presented on our behalf to reconcile us to God in spite of our sinful state. That's all very well and good. The question is, if you're not somebody who already understands this, how are you going to recognize that you're a sinner?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And the only way you can recognize that you're a sinner is that there is some natural law that exists before you are made the recipient of the gospel message. You know, before the events referred to in the 10th chapter of the book of Romans, mm-hmm. how would they know, unless the preachers are sent, you know, that sort right, of thing. Right. Before the emissaries arrive, you've got to know that you're a sinner. And the only way you can know that you're a sinner is that there is a law that you understand at some level mm-hmm. that doesn't require the active articulation of the gospel in order to understand. Mm-hmm. And so that's the natural law we're talking about. And that natural law governs all human societies, all human relationships. Covenantal or non-covenantal, and of course that was what obtained before Sinai in terms of the moral foundation of society.
0: Well, and, and that even ties into a suspicion I've long had that that God actually judges us based upon the truth we reject, uh, not the, truth not, well the truth huh. we're not the truth we're not the truth we're not privy to, but the truth that we choose to reject is what He will judge us on. Um, even after the Mosaic Law came, the Ten Commandments and, and its further elaborations, um, as shown in the Pentateuch, uh, how did God, as expressed in, in the Scriptures, how did he expect the Gentile nations and their rulers to function, uh, based upon some hints we have in Scripture? Not and We're not talking about Israel, we're talking about the other Gentile sure. nations.
2: It was expected, and it was required of rulers, that they would understand their subordinate status and The scheme of things, I'm thinking specifically of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar after he vaunted himself and considered himself to be more or less what his official courtiers and propagandists described him to be, which was the king of kings and lord of lords and ruler of the known universe. He was rather abruptly reduced to a status well beneath that station. And I think that's a really powerful example of the all-encompassing sovereignty of God. And it was expected and required of these rulers of pagan nations that they would comport themselves according to the national law or natural, forgive me, not national, natural law, in recognizing God's existence, his sovereignty, and in recognizing the obligation to protect the rights, the property, the individual dignity of their subjects. That of course is very much the exception in all of political history and certainly of the history that's recorded in the Old Testament. If you take a look at uh, Egypt and Babylon as the two great counterexamples to the way that society should operate according to the Old Testament standard, in Egypt, of course, you had the Pharaoh, somebody who exalted himself as if he were God. And in some of the non-biblical Jewish uh, historical and, and mythological reading I've done, specifically non canonical works like the Antiquities of Josephus and Uh, an interesting collection of myths of dubious provenance called the Book of Jasher. It's not the Book of Jasher referred to in the Old Testament. It's an 18th, 19th century pastiche of of, uh, Talmudic oddities and legends and so forth. There are a lot of things that are said about Egyptian society that I find quite provocative in terms of the idea of the pharaoh as the dogman. And that, of course, was something that completely reprehensible in the sight of God, in the sight of God's people, but it was a very strong and, uh, I think, deliberately uh, provocative image and memory in the minds of the Hebrews when they were emancipated from that system, and it took 40 years, this is my interpretation of the events here, it took 40 years to detoxify the Israelite nation of certain Misunderstandings and ideological toxins that they had acquired as uh, subjects of the the pagan uh, empire of of, Pharaonic, of Pharaonic, uh, Egypt. I, I think that's one of the things that happened over the course of those uh, forty years or more of, of their peregrinations in the wilderness is that they were they were being given a purgative I mean, it's almost like a purgatory. They're being yeah. purged in yeah. mm. sure. Babylon. Of course, the founder of Babylon was Nimrod, and Josephus says that Nimrod's entire political agenda was to install himself in the place of God by making everybody dependent on the state, and that for this reason, people were not only discouraged to become self, self-regulating and uh, self-reliant, it was actually a species of crime in Babylon, to assert self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And self-reliance in this context means, of course, using the talents and the uh, abilities that your creator gave you in order to improve your state in life. Um, in just very quickly here, one one other observation about Babylon here. Uh, in Will and Ariel Durant's book *Our Oriental Heritage*, which was the where they began their multi-volume study of uh, west of uh, Western civilization. And that's a study which is immensely uh, well written and, and endlessly fascinating and thoroughly clotted with all kinds of heretical nonsense. But in <laughs> their... don't
0: hold back. Tell us what you're really doing. <laughs> the, we've, the had, the Oriental... we had, we've had our show described similarly. Yeah, uh, are <laughs> you not know, talking
1: about
2: Teacher <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in our Oriental heritage, the description of, of Babylon uh, is really quite fascinating because it talks about the idea that there was literally. Uh, such a a manic, antic profusion of deities that nobody could keep track of all the the various Babylonian idols. Every household had dozens of them. And Durant at the time, he was a very militant uh, non-believer. He he took the Catholic sacraments on his deathbed in Conscious Imitation of Voltaire, which I think is sort of an interesting little bit in his biography. But Durant was a, a cynical and very witty unbeliever, but one of the points he made here was really quite interesting. He said that You had a pantheon in Babylon of literally thousands and thousands of deities, and you had Babylonians praying to them for success in battle, or for profitable returns in commerce, or for amorous conquest, but none of them would even think of making a petition for eternal life or for redemption of sins. That wasn't the function of the deity in the system that Nimrod created. Everything was thoroughly materialistic, and everything had to do with obtaining advantage through the intervention or through the the imagined intervention of some deity. And that's one of the reasons, I think, uh, one of the most important illustrations of the, of the fact that uh, Babylon is such a powerful counterexample here, that you come back to again and again and again in the scriptures about Babylon as the image of everything that is constantly evil, and degrading in terms of politics and cu- culture and morality. Mm-hmm. And it all has to do, first of all, with the rejection. of The first tenet of, of the natural law, you dethrone God, that is, you you reject, you rebel against his sovereignty, and then you enthrone the state in God's place, and you make those who administer the state the, the priesthood of this divinized uh, political entity.
0: Was Nimrod and the first to merge religious belief and the state together?
2: He is to the best of our knowledge from both the bible and secular sources he is the one who created that innovation the merger of church and state making the the former an appendage of the latter and giving the the latter really the role of deity
0: so he would be the, the first he'd be the first dominionist then so to speak
2: I would think that's an entirely fair assessment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nice that's
1: put that.
2: That, that's, that, of course, is going to cause no end of trouble in, in certain circles, but I really don't see how you can reject that assessment, given the fact that he wanted to have plenary jurisdiction and that he didn't recognize any limits on the power of the state, because the state, of course, was now acting as the deity. And, and when, you, when, you, when you merge church and state of necessity, the entire state becomes an act in, of worshipping the government.
0: You know what? That's uh, one of the
2: reasons why you have to keep the two separate. You,
0: you, you know, when they talk about it taking America back, maybe that's what they mean back to. Back Take to the yeah, old time
2: religion.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. God, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, you know, another
0: example I'll give very quickly because I wrote about this in a, in a book that uh, is available on our website. But I, I wrote about fuel and food shortages and give the example in Egypt. Uh, where, what the Egyptian government did, unfortunately, with the complicity of Joseph, was just like what our government did in 2008, uh, where, where, uh, the famine happened, Joseph sort of saved the, uh, uh, saved the government by giving them advance warning what was going on. So, so what they did was they, when there was an abundance, they either bought at very, very cheap rates or took excess produce from the first seven years and confiscated it and took it and under ownership of the state. And then when the famine came and people did not have they charged people to be able to get the food back. And yeah. they charged it and of course it's supply and demand, so it's gonna be a very high rate and the people were quickly out of food or out of money and they said basically either kill us or do something because we're basically wards of the state. And they they so creatively found out that they could actually take the the, uh, means of work, the work tools, the the draft horses and the tools, and the state (coughs) confiscated those or foreclosed on them, uh, and then put them back to work uh, for one year, for a substance for one year. And when they came back again and that was gone, uh, they basically had to make themselves slaves, and they became slaves to the state. They confiscated their property. And then it says they moved the people to the city, so they put them up in little Mm high-rise apartments. certainly
1: sounds like exactly where we're going. And they they went back back
0: to the fields, except they used government tools on government property that used to be their own. And now the, the state begins giving them seeds so they can start growing, now that the government is confiscated. And the only people who came out unscathed, were the people who were compensated in the right uh, and non-depreciating currency, which was food. The priests were paid in food. So they didn't have to pay a premium since they were continuing their food supply, and therefore they never lost their land, they never lost anything else. Uh, And so the people, that says, came under slavery because of this opportunity that the government took, uh, because they just controlled one critical uh, staple – they were able to confiscate everything from the people, and I think that's what we saw in 2008, where the the government actually took advantage of uh, a shortfall in, in hiring and in other things, began to foreclose, and now they're the largest property owner. They're the largest uh, yeah. you know, slumlord, I guess you could hmm. say. Uh, yeah, they also, their
2: hands are hand stretched out still. I mean, they've not right. stopped or even abated that process. Yeah.
0: Uh, oh, they, they own, own automakers? Order. Right, they own automakers. Of, what? How many millions of the public now work for a government-owned entity, or insurance even, agencies? Even
1: the, even during they were proposing another bailout recently, and on the Senate floor, and uh, one of the senators from New York, I can't remember which one, got up and said, "Look, New York State needs a bailout because we are a high-tax state, and all these other states are low-tax states, so yeah. they have a competitive advantage." <laughs> and, and when you look in the <laughs> Gosh.
0: when you look at the third seal in Revelation. You will actually see this is on, going on for a long time when you see the rider with the scales in his hand weighing out mm-hmm. the exchange rate for a yep. day's worth of sustenance food. Uh, basically the, the, the kingdoms of this world have done the same system from time immemorial. But I know we could go here for a long time, but I, I, I guess I want to wrap up by, by understanding. We're, we're, we're going to understand a little bit more exactly what government expected Gentile nations, like ours, to do when we look at the judgments he placed on them, and the judgments he elaborates, what he holds them f- accountable for what they didn't do, but they were accountable during this period of time. If you have a, a large enough group of people on the outside looking at the affairs of those who abused it, it was recognized by civilization that 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 those kind of activities were abuses. Uh, yeah. But by those who were free of those abuses, they could comment honestly that this was wrong. It was universally understood to be wrong. When it happened, but that also these nations were outside the Mosaic covenant. Uh, they were not part of the people who were taking the covenant with the unique people that God chose, but that doesn't mean that God didn't have standards for these other nations, even proceeding after his, his experiment or his, his isolated, uh, what do you call it, laboratory, uh, with the people of, of Israel, of uh, Abraham yeah. through Israel. Well, he still had a... other expectations from them. Yeah. They,
2: the Hunts to Sinai was, of course, for Israel to be, if you will, sort of the vanguard for humanity in terms of receiving God's law, and they were chosen up from the nations of the earth to be witnesses of God's law. And in that sense, of course, Israel was and, and is chosen. Israel in its broadest sense, broadest definition being, of course, those of us who are received into the Abrahamic covenant through adoption by becoming bondservants of Jesus Christ, basically. But they were supposed to be the vanguard in terms of propounding the Ten Commandments, the law as articulated in the Decalogue. But the reason why they were able to have a common conversation about that subject was because the natural law was already understood, albeit instinctively, by anybody who was not part of that covenant. Already there was a common moral vocabulary. And that, of course, reflects the fact, well, a number of facts. Uh, one of the facts that uh, even something like Noam Chomsky, who's an atheist and collectivist, recognizes, is that language simply existed. It, it didn't exist. It didn't evolve. It's something that uh, occurred, that that, uh, that which, uh, according to Aristotle, separates humanity from the other orders of creation is the, the ability to use language to express abstract concepts to persuade others. And Noam Chomsky, once again, is somebody who will never be mistaken for a creationist, but he points out that language is one of those aspects of recorded human history that attest that there is something different about humanity from the other animals to which we're supposedly related through evolution. And we had this common ability to converse with each other, and there was already a common moral vocabulary. I mean, we couldn't have a conversation about morality unless we understood morality to begin with. You know, there's a real right. chicken and egg paradox there. But that's because of this natural law that we're talking about, and all nations are subject to it just as all created things are subject to the law of gravity.
0: Right. Hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I think that's important for people to think about. It. But I mean, When you mention the Mosaic Law, uh, as I understand the fuller elaboration that Paul gives later, looking in hindsight, uh, it was eventually understood to be a schoolmaster to basically show what yes. couldn't be followed. Yes. God God went in with the full understanding of premeditation. In detail. It was a law that could not be followed. So Yeah, I uh, love
2: I love Martin Luther's insight on that where he says, Okay, what are the what are the two great commandments? You know, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well I can't keep that commandment. So right from the beginning I'm damned. Right. You know, that was, I think, his fundamental insight there in terms of the fact that we are saved, as was later explained through uh, the epistle of the Ephesians, we're saved by grace. Mm-hmm. We have to be saved by grace. And to give you chapter and verse in intimate detail into the manifold and ever-multiplying ways that we offend God through our sin, we had the law of Moses, the, the, the rituals, ordinances, sacrifices, observances, to impress upon people in a very tangible way our intimate and all-encompassing dependence on God's mercy for forgiveness and salvation. And that was, of course, a very harsh schoolmaster, to use the expression Mm -hmm. there for the book of Galatians, but it was a very necessary one in the context of that phase of God's unfolding design for salvation. But that is not something that... uh, that's not something that was necessary in order to have the, the rudimentary moral understandings that are part of the natural law, that uh, conduce to some level of of social uh, cohesion without coercion, without compulsion, uh, that is necessary in order to have a functioning society.
0: Well, and I guess that's the line of thinking I'm going. It leads me to some provocative thoughts. Uh, you know, they say that um, a law that is un- unenforceable. is is not a good law. Mm -hmm. It's a flawed law, that's it's unenforceable. So if we look at the Mosaic Law totally as a means by which to create a permanently viable society, that that is a tool we're supposed to do, if it's a law that cannot be obeyed, are we misunderstanding what the purpose of the law is? Because that's what's being marketed to us now in Christian circles, is that if we go back to that, that's what's going to create an indefinitely steady and stable society, when God is saying in the Scripture, it was shown to show you that you could not do it. But yet it was a bridge to lead you to when Christ puts the law on your hearts. So I'm just wondering if somehow we're maybe reading something different in in using the purpose of the Mosaic Law beyond what Paul and our Christian forefathers told us was the real intent and purpose of it.
2: My understanding is that the Mosaic Law is enforceable in the sense that uh, he who issued it enforced it and then deferred the execution of that law on conditions of repentance and acceptance of his gift of atonement. The passage that comes irresistibly to my mind, and I'm going to do violence to it because I can't remember it exactly, it's not from the Bible, but it's, it's from Shakespeare, it's from The Merchant of Venice, that wonderful soliloquy in which Portia, is in disguise, is pleading Antonio's case for mercy. You know, the quality of mercy is not strained, that whole soliloquy. But the, the best part of it, uh, actually, forgive me, I'm, I'm confusing that with Measure for Measure. It was actually, I think Isabella in Measure for Measure, I think it was Isabella, who said that uh, all the souls that are were lost once, and he who could the advantage best have taken in himself found the remedy. And by the law, by the enforcement of the law, all of us would go irretrievably to hell. But the law has to be enforced, and that, of course, is what made the cross necessary. The problem here is that that has been done, and yet there are people who insist that we have to go back before the consummation of the law, before the temple veil was rent, and the the work that was conducted behind the temple veil was was pronounced to be finished, completed, consummated, people want to restore the status quo anti-the atonement as a model for the organization of human society, and it wasn't created for that purpose. It was never created as a model for the organization of political society, whether you're talking about a political society that would exist in perpetuity among the covenant people or those who are outside the realm of the covenant. It wasn't given for that purpose. Its purpose has been completed, and yet there are some people who want to act as if the books of Galatians and Colossians, Inter Alia, don't exist, or that they are of no consequence in terms of God's program for salvation and God's program for human freedom. I don't understand that, but that seems to be where a lot of people have arrived.
0: Well, that's where I'm trying to direct our discussion. Uh, The most vocal elements of the Christian society in America right now uh, are going back to do what I understand the Judaizers have tried to do to reestablish yeah. these things. And I think Paul would have stood against it. Uh, he because might have even said,
1: I wish they would have cut themselves off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. So, <laughs> so, because, because
0: he, it had been revealed what God's plan was through, through that whole phase and the use of the law, and it was fulfilled. He said he came to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet we're going back to something prior to that delivery, like you say, and resurrecting that and applying it in a civil manner across the board. Uh, while the law created a very wonderful society when it was followed, we know most of the time that mankind did not have the wherewithal to follow it. And because it was not followed, uh majority of the time in Israel's culture were dark days because they found themselves unable to be able to fulfill this ideal standard
2: well there's a lot of what the bible records by way of history that is meant to impress upon us the apparently infinite and infinitely self-replenishing nature of man's foolishness yeah. and the consequences thereof I, for what here's a really good example from the new testament uh the epistles to the colossians the two that we have there's at least uh, one other of course that wasn't included in the canon but the two that we have are a rather detailed description of a failing church. Now, why do we have, in the middle of the New Testament, which, of course, uh, conveys the good news of salvation, why do we have these two books, these two epistles, which give us a very detailed and somewhat despairing account of a church community that eventually withered and died in a very wealthy commercial uh, trading center? And I think that's because we're supposed to profit from the negative example of all the things that mm-hmm. were wrong We're supposed to avoid these things and of course the admonitions to do right were supposed to follow and they weren't followed, they weren't applied and because they weren't applied you ended up with the church that eventually died and you can see the same type of thing when you read some of the darker passages of the book of Judges for instance or some of the other historical works of the Old Testament and one of the things that uh, I think you correctly point out is that this illustrates our inability, really, to create a better and juster society by assuming that we have the righteous ability to compel others to be righteous. I mean, that's one of the constant conceits that is used to assemble and exercise power, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're talking about the Old Testament or in the New. And unfortunately, that's the perennial temptation. That was the last of the desert temptations, if you will, uh, presented to Jesus. I mean, it, I was just talking with my wife, Corinne, about this this afternoon, about what uh, chutzpah was displayed by the adversary as he presented to uh, our Lord a vision of the kingdom of the world and said, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And, of course, Jesus told him to get lost, but I've got to imagine that at some point in that conversation, it would have been made clear. Uh, Jesus would have told Satan, you're trying to bribe me with something I already own. And that mm-hmm. goes back to... So that's basically the trick that you're describing that took place in Egypt, you know, where the government confiscates mm-hmm. something that you own and then and then makes you pay to get it back. I mean, that's the same kind of uh, trick that uh, Satan was trying to play with Jesus. But the point I'm making here about the nature of the kingdoms here is that that's the temptation. There's always the idea that we somehow, as Christians, we somehow have sufficient righteousness. To embrace the temptation that Jesus rejected. That by acquiring political power, by becoming the the sovereign over all these realms, that somehow we can do right where Jesus' message was, No, you see, that's not how it is accomplished. You know, think of all the wonderful things I could do if only I had the power, if I were sitting on the throne that were the very cockpit of human society. Uh, because of my unique justice and righteousness, think of all the good that can be done with this power. And it's important that good people exercise mm-hmm. that power, because if we don't, then a vacuum will be created that will be filled by lesser men.
0: Yeah, well, the by the way, is, could, Con, could Tom Bionic and I sit on your right hand or your left when you take that seat? It's <laughs> the same idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. get my mom to drive. Gr- never mind. Never mind. All right. Well, uh... Before I'm labeled as being too disparaging of the Mosaic Covenant, um, I, there, there, there's one particular point of it I think that maintains its relevance to us today in our in our governing capacities. Under the Mosaic Law, how, how did God set up the society of Israel into separate governing powers of kings or, or, or judges or tribal elders even before then for civil yeah. matters and priests for religious matters? What, what wisdom was God trying to show us there by that?
2: You don't want to sacralize the exercise of political power, I think. And that, of course, is exactly the opposite of Nimrod's arrangement, where by virtue of being somebody who exercised authority, which is to say delegated limited power in the civic realm, you so you, you exalt yourself as a minister of God to that person. Now, In the sense that you are governed by God's law, there is a limited and unique way in which you could say that there is a certain ministry involved here, but you're not ministering to God in the sense of uh, acting with respect to the status of the soul of the individual with whom you're conducting political business. In other words, you don't have, in the original scheme that existed during the the era of the, the patriarchal clans and the judges and the priests, you don't have a temptation to look upon uh, any of these political officials as the pontiffs of a religion. I mean, today, in our post-Republican imperial American political system, whoever is elected president becomes a divine emperor king. He's not only a limited-term dictator, he is something akin to a deified figure. And this, of course, is something which has been said of Barack Obama many occasions, but during the two terms of George W. Bush's reign, there were many, many depictions of him that were circulated by pious, Bible-believing, church-attending Christians that made him look as if he were draped in some divine aspect. And that's something which goes back a long ways in the history of our country. I mean, good heavens, even George Washington, who no doubt would have been horrified by the fact, has been depicted as experiencing an apotheosis, a literal ascent to godhood. And after Abraham Lincoln was murdered, within hours he was being depicted as a Christ figure. Well, you don't have the temptation to deify somebody in the type of an arrangement that that God actually provided for the ancient Israelites. You had judges who applied the law, and the law, of course, was rooted in, and, and if you take a look at, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there are many, many applications of this principle, but rooted in the idea of doing equity based on on property and on non-aggression, refraining from aggressing against your your neighbor, against his property, refraining even from coveting his property, the covetousness that will lead to aggression. Judges were supposed to apply that law. He had patriarchal leaders within the various tribes who would administer the affairs of the various tribes, and then he had the priests who would administer the rituals of the law. And the thing is, after Israel ended up saddled with a king as a result of apostasy, that's made very clear in the eighth chapter of First Samuel. And the reason why they wanted the king, as it says, is so that he would lead them into war like all the other nations. All these other nations governed by Nimrod's concept of government. Even after that, it is specifically stated in the coronation chapter, I believe it's in the ninth chapter of First Samuel, that there was a written order to the kingdom, if, if you will. It was a constitutional monarchy in Samuel under God's direction, wrote down the limits of the king's authority, he could not transgress those limits without incurring God's disfavor. Mm -hmm. And what is it that he did that eventually caused Mm -hmm. the kingship to be taken from him? He tried to join church and state. Right. That was the, the signal offense of King Saul, was that he presumed the authority to offer sacrifices and to minister as if he were a priest, when that was not given to him. So you can't really blame the ACLU or the Society of Separationists for the concept of keeping the church and state or the throne and the altar separate. That's something that you read about in First Samuel. And the the primeval sin in this respect was the very first king of Israel who violated the limits of his authority by presuming to join church and
0: state. hmm So so the Lord has has been on the record for a long time where he stands on this.
2: Yeah, that which the Lord is divided, let no men try to join.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, what what does Scripture say from from the prophets and elsewhere? Were the issues God was most angry with Israel's kings in civil leadership and how they functioned? Uh, and I'm not talking about the priest or the religious leadership, you know, leadership or or their their moral failings or idol worship. Not 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 the the spiritual issues, you know, about. Uh, worshiping other gods. What were the other criticisms that the prophets judged the civil leaders for?
2: Almost without exception, they all have to do with doing violence against the weak, transgressing those elements of the Ten Commandments that have to do with obeying the second great commandment. The two great commandments, of course, are love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That goes back, of course, to Deuteronomy, or before that. I mean, it was articulated forcefully in the Shema from Deuteronomy, and you can read it in the golden text as well, I believe, in the book of Micah, if I remember correctly. But it all had to do with second great commandment issues, the corruption of power that led people to presume that they were emancipated from the chains of God's law, and that because they were powerful, they could presume to do those things which God had forbidden those who were in lowlier station to do. I mean, I love the way that uh, the prophet Nathan read David the riot act, that he basically entrapped David using his own conscience against him after David mm-hmm. coveted and then committed adultery with uh, Uriah's Masheba, yeah. wife, bathsheba and then had Uriah killed. Basically, you have the trifecta there. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. you you've, stage by stage by stage. He was he was somewhere he shouldn't have been doing something that was none of his business. Uh, he saw something that he wanted because he had the power to take it. He took it, and that created the situation that made it necessary in order to cover his sin, to make somebody else pay for his transgression. He did that, of course, because he had the political power to do it. And so God sent Nathan to him, and using a moral parable once again, going back to the natural law, which is written on David's heart, which he had ignored, which he was rebelling against. Nathan trapped him in his own words to get him to recognize the nature of the sin by using a parable that applied to somebody who was not invested with political power. Mm-hmm. Now, that happened, of course, with somebody who was uh, a man through whom a lot of the Psalms were written. But you can take a look at a uh, number of other examples later on in the, the historical and prophetic works.
0: Will, Will where, can I give some examples? Uh, just sure. Just a comment. Uh, It seems like to me God talks a lot about how much he hates dishonest weights and and measures. Where the the, the government and the standards authorities do um, business and mercantile exploitation of others by not having a fair playing field for commerce to go on. And the the unconnected, the unpowerful, the unwealthy always get burned. Uh, Over and over again it says in the courts that the wealthy received justice in the courts, whereas those that were not wealthy did not get justice in the courts. Um, It says that the stranger or the person who was not the citizen was often exploited and taken advantage of in their society, uh, as well as the widows, the orphans, the other helpless in society. And it makes God sound like one of those... uh, Pink old commie liberals, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that God spent... I mean, we've really got to be concerned about God and his liberal tendencies in that he puts this stuff in the A-list, Of the complaints of the prophets. Now, he says a lot about idol worship. He says a lot about following false gods and all these kind of things. But if you put that in a scale, you're going to find a lot of the prophetic literature of judgment over those things that I just mentioned, which was an overbearing, controlling society that would actually be very comfortable to most of us in the conservative background Mm. in our nation. A society that we would say, hey, that's just. Big business, that's just the way it is out there, and everybody's got to pull themselves out of the bootstraps. But God didn't see it that way. You know, it's interesting no. you mentioned... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Will.
2: I was just going to say, if you take a look at my my favorite... I don't know if this is presumptuous of me to say this, but my, my favorite passages of imprecatory scripture are the first ten chapters of the book of Jeremiah.
1: Hmm. And
2: he makes it very clear. There's a refrain. He talks about the the prophet... The, the, the prophet, the priest, the king, and none, nobody does justly, and he goes into the very litany you just described, uh, the, the various and sundry ways that people go about taking advantage of each other because they're more powerful, taking advantage of the, of the less powerful, I should say, and how that had so rotted the society that their sense of vaunting righteousness had become an idol to them. You know, we have the temple in our midst, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. These are line words, God said to Jeremiah. Yes, I would, I would see nothing at all wrong, God said, with destroying this house that bears my name because I've done it before. You misunderstand. This doesn't make you immune to justice. You, because of your professed righteousness, because of your power, you've, you've made yourself an, an, an idol in your own eyes. I mean, idolatry, the besetting sin of the human condition, idolatry, is self-worship. And this is something Isaiah talks about, where a man will take an axe to a tree and then fashion it into an idol, then kneel down before the idol that he just manufactured. Well, whom is he worshipping? He's worshipping himself. And that's why idolatry is always paired, where I I read the prophetic literature in the Bible, always paired with institutionalized injustice, the manipulation of standards of commerce, like you said, dishonest weights and measures, manipulating the currency, of course, that's that's another Mm -hmm. form. That's the most <laughs> familiar form of manipulating uh, wage, measures, and currency, uh, the way that justice is perverted in mm. order to enthrone the powerful and to make the connected prosper at the expense of the innocent. And, of course, the people who are always on the receiving end of this are the most helpless in society, and nothing infuriates God more than that type of systemic, institutionalized injustice. That's not a pinko-liberal commie idea, but a biblical idea, and it resonates with the souls of everybody. I mean, not even liberal pinko commies are immune to that moral operating mm-hmm. system. And so they understand that. It's, it's in the realm of solutions that they get fouled up. Many of them right. diagnose the problems pretty well, but their That's solutions, right. of course, exacerbate those problems.
0: Right. Uh, they recognize that God has a problem with these things, and then they promptly make the government God to solve it exactly. and address it. Uh, Tom, you had a comment you were going to make.
1: Uh, he actually just took the words right out of my mouth basically okay. you see the so often you see the uh um you see idolatry and uh, uh the lack of justice and righteousness paired up together so much so in in uh Romans two you know talking about uh the sin of the Hebrews, it says that God looked at their hearts and then gave them over to all that idolatry and stuff. Which mm-hmm. I can't help yeah. but I can't help but think so it was you know? a side effect, basically. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. exactly. You know, and I huh. I've actually it's interesting you mentioned this and we're having this discussion because in you know reading the word, that's one of the things that has been poking out to me more and more and more in reading God's judgments, especially in Jeremiah, you know where you yeah. see a definite a definite change from the Old Testament, uh, uh, or the the pre what do you call it the pre-exilic prophet to the post-exilic prophet. The yeah. very the very beginning of that is very much, uh, you know, telling Israel uh, in the you know in the Amos style of of, of uh, mm-hmm. prophetic stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas you see the you see the latter stuff reflecting uh, the judgment already occurring in in the style of prose and
0: stuff. That's interesting that the that the idol worship would almost be a judgment in and of itself as a byproduct yeah. of them turning away. Mm-hmm. From civil exploitation, which is like, like Will, I think, mm-hmm. alluded to, a self-deification, mm-hmm. where you put yourself in a position of God, mm-hmm. and then therefore he turns them over, so to speak, to a reprobate mind, well, and the fascinating, into idol worship. Yeah,
1: the fascinating thing, even beyond that, is that, uh, if you were to apply Isaiah, the last couple of chapters of Isaiah, you know, he says in a couple of different places that if they refuse to turn, he gives them over. Right. He gives yeah. them over to, to delusions. They don't even get to pick their delusions. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Well,
2: Go ahead. Take the back of 1 Samuel chapter eight. What is it that Samuel, or what is it that God told Samuel, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. In Mm other words,
2: Samuel (laughs) was sent back and gave them a detailed list of what that king would do to them. He would conscript your sons, he would take your daughters and, and turn them into his handmaidens, basically. He will plunder your wealth, although nowhere near as ferociously as the government we're living under right now plunders our wealth. He will do all these things to you. And they said, nope, that's what we want. And God said, okay, uh, the people have decided that's what they want. I'll give it to them good and hard. I mean, it's almost as if Mencken mm-hmm. was thinking of that when mm-hmm. he famously said the democracy is the theory of government that says the people know what they want, deserve to get it good and hard. Well, that's what happened in First Samuel chapter 8. That's people being turned over to the reprobate mind. But even in that situation, we see God's patience and his love and forbearance, because even then... What happened? Samuel was given divine instructions to write a limit, a document yes. limiting what 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 that king could do even in those circumstances, and yet he transgressed that as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: in
2: that we see the model of human politics since that time,
0: unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah, you know God can write all those standards to try to protect them, but the risk they undertook is is putting so much power in a person that could then choose to disregard. God's law entirely, and there was no check and balance to stay their hand. There was no way, at least when the tribes, when you had individual tribes, if you had a tyrant took over one of the 12 tribes, the rest of them were free or could counteract through that decentralization. Now you've handed over the keys of tyranny. What were you going to say, Will?
2: I was going to say with respect to the way that people permit this consolidation of power and the fact that people, for whatever reason, chose to embrace this idol the state that was headed by a king who supposedly represented their the physical manifestation of the redemptive agency that is the state. You see how that resonates with Nimrod's idea? Uh-huh, you have right. a king, he's a figurehead, he symbolizes, he makes incarnate the state that is supposed to protect you. No, that's God's gig. You hmm. don't get to usurp that. But the reason why people do this is because... To the words of my favorite exilic prophet, and once again, it's, it's inappropriate for me to pick favorites, I guess, Ezekiel, where he has an encounter with three of the elders, this course, during the, the period of exile, when people thought that Israel had been completely rejected by God, and one of the most beautiful messages in the book of Ezekiel is that, no, God has not rejected you. He still loves you. You're going to be redeemed, and your redemption will be a model of the resurrection, is how I read Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. But these three sat down with them, and God prompted Ezekiel, saying, These men have set up idols in their hearts. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't have physical idols in front of them, but there were idols in their hearts. And it's, of course, in the heart that salvation occurs. It's in the heart that redemption takes place. And it's in the heart when people embrace idolatry. And so, as you said, the physical act of idol worship is the late-stage symptom of the cancer of idolatry that's already taken over the soul of an individual or, in the aggregate, a nation. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you see those passages condemning idolatry and the various (coughs) forms of debauchery that are part of the idol-worshiping milieu. You see those connected to institutionalized injustice. And I can't help but think that this is so appropriate to a nation that purports to be a Christian nation, that is killing people by the thousands and tens of thousands overseas, and mm-hmm. has an institutionalized system of injustice and that can make anybody a criminal if he's powerless, and our most popular television show is called American Idol. You know huh. that seems to me <laughs> perfectly <laughs> wow. symmetrical yeah. in mm-hmm. terms of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, I I'd, I I'd, I'd just like to speak on behalf of Brother Will here in terms of looking out for those who are exploited and uh, when the courts and the wheels of injustice and law enforcement work against those who are powerless I cannot think of any other Christian brother I know of uh, above uh, Will Grigg in his undeniable passion and endless activity to look out for the interest Mm -hmm. of those who no one else is looking out for doggedly so and I, I believe that you take seriously and you fulfill uh, this mandate from God and you serve as an example for us and for everybody else I believe in the Christian kingdom because I, I'm, I'm sorry Will but I don't see amongst the rank and file, the activists in the Christian communities I'm talking about in the uh, the conservative evangelical communities where I've come from I do not see their passion when they look for their political figures, for their rulers that they're grooming and promoting in the, in the Christian culture to see how well they are going to look at that the poor receive protection of the courts, sometimes I or wonder those that if are not worshipping, powerless.
1: If they're worshiping uh, Baal as Yahweh, sometimes it's an I wonder if myself. Yeah,
0: but you, you <laughs> know, you know what I'm saying, and advice, in fact, that would be considered uh, a, a liberal or something that would have uh, been invented by Saul Walensky, you know, <laughs> or Karl Marx before this idea, rather than Jehovah invented this idea. That courts should yeah. not take it, not see people whether they're rich or poor, and that everyone from the rulers on down are responsible for that, as well as that commerce is done fairly and that people are not exploited in their commerce, or even people that aren't citizens aren't exploited in the process. These are the words of Jehovah speaking. Yeah, and if we exactly. call ourselves Bible believing Christians that believe in the reality of the cosmology that God shows in His scripture, then we pretty much have to accept that or we're going to be held in judgment. Are we not? Even though we may be in church every week and have been very, very faithful in quoting Scripture, we're going to hear the same words that these people of Israel did?
2: I, I definitely think that we'll be held in judgment and it will be the judgment that we've discussed here where we're turned over to face in an unalloyed fashion the consequences of what we've chosen. It's so funny how time after time you read that pattern in Scripture of God permitting people to get what it is that they want because of their unregenerate appetites, because they have decided that there is a better way to organize society and a better way to treat each other than the very simple and loving system that God designed for us. The perfect law of liberty is is described in the Epistle of St. James. Mm -hmm. And I see politics, once again, this conversation I had with my wife Corinne earlier today. I see politics as nothing more or less than the unending quest for self-enriching exceptions to the Golden Rule. And at some point, that has consequences that are inescapable for any society, whether Christian or pagan, whether Christian and non-Christian, that eventually throws off the very light yoke that is God's law. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he described his burden as light, You know, his yoke rests lightly on our shoulders, because he's not only redeemed us from sin, but he has taught us how to live in a way that will relieve us of temporal bondage. You know, if we shackle the appetites that lead us to try to take advantage of other people through coercion, uh, through fraud backed by coercion. And that, of course, is the leitmotif of those prophetic passages you're talking about. They're behaving fraudulently, and they're backing their fraud with force. You know, if we eschew that, if we embrace the natural law that God taught, uh, before the revelation of the Ten Commandments as it was lived by the patriarchs, not perfectly, of course, there were men like us, but if we embrace that, then the burden is life, and we have joy in this life, as well, of course, as salvation of the life to come. And the alternative, of course, is God simply allowing us to, to receive that which our behavior says that we want, irrespective of what we say with our tongues. The more eloquent testimony of our behavior is what's going to be used in judgment against us. And,
0: and what we just talked about as far as how God holds the the civil officials of Israel accountable for their exploitation of others, for these other civil matters, the same thing he also holds true for the pagan Gentile nations yes. as well, which, so. which I assume that automatically includes America, since we <laughs> since <laughs> we, are, uh, we are.
1: I don't know. Maybe never mind. I was going to make a bad joke. We, I
0: mean, as as a pagan Gentile nation, we will be held accountable for those same criteria that he shows clearly that the other nations that are not Israel will be held to as well. Yeah,
2: I'm I'm afraid that's true. But the good news, of course, is that God is not only just, but he's also merciful. Mm-hmm. And I think in his mercy, and this is something that I, I certainly hope is the case, in his mercy uh, we'll find that he will provide a way to rescue the island of the innocent. I believe that's a passage in the book of Job. You know, we're not going to be free from privations and tribulations. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is, if, if we seek earnestly to do what is right, if we're not seduced into believing our own press, if you will, in Mm -hmm. terms of our our supposed infinite righteousness, I honestly believe that uh, there will be, even amid the circumstances that surround us, there will be tangible and very real joy, even in this life, as Mm -hmm. as afraid as as unpleasantness as it's going to be. I'm not going to say that God... I'm going to intervene to save the United States because we're his special favorite. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that uh, those who accept him on his terms i mean we were to surrender to him and it's supposed to be unconditional there are no conditions right. to unconditional surrender but those of us who live in this country who've had the benefit of, of living in this country mm-hmm. or anywhere else on this planet those of us who accept and live his law will, will know joy in this life however mm-hmm. rough it might get in the in the interim
0: right Right. Well, I appreciate you putting that on a positive note. You know, we've been like a cheetah going through this material here. We have already through five questions of the 28. uh, Sweet. It just means we're going to have to have round two. Through this. um, Would you be so kind as to come back to pick up part two sometime at a time of your convenience?
2: I would very much enjoy that, and I really appreciate the invitation. It's Uh, a great honor that you do me by having me on your program.
0: Well, I'm sorry I'm taking us back to the pre-Cambrian era (laughs) and moving forward in the Mesozoic. I've been accused several times of being a little slow, you know, to get up off sort of the tortoise of uh, alternative Christian radio. (laughs) but uh i had planned to start talking about jesus in the next question Welcome and then to slothquake. move move on to the <laughs> latter stretches but we'll leave it at that but in closing i want to uh clarify a little bit of what's going on with your blog and anything else with you because if people don't know you i'm i'm almost certain our listeners are going to want to find out more and we've not provided you really the form that really serves your dignity of the material that you carry. Mm-hmm. You do that much better yourself. So uh what's going on with your blog? Anything else you've got going on and how people can follow your work?
2: Right now, the blog is still up and running, and I've not yet been able to integrate the blog with a number of other projects I'm doing with respect to video commentaries and radio. But these are all projects that I'm busily working at, and as soon as I have any, Developments to report. I'll be doing that on my blog, which can be found at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. It's called Pro Libertate. Pro Libertate, the blog, at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. I update it about three times a week as my schedule permits. The current posting at Pro Libertate is about a land grab in the state of Missouri where a 300 and some odd acre facility called Camp Zoo, which is run by a counterculture musician, is being forfeited by the government, that is to say, stolen under the color of supposed law, because of the misbehavior of others. They found the property guilty, and they're taking it from him without proving that he had any role in committing a crime against anybody. And this is very typical of what goes on in our society right now. It's like mm-hmm. Naboth, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Right. It happens every single day. But that's the lead essay at freedominouttime.blogspot.com. Most likely, it will be republished at bluerockwell.com sometime in the next little while. My radio show, Pro Libertarian Radio, is on hiatus right now. I'm switching networks. I'm probably going to start up again with broadcasts on Saturday night after the beginning of the new year, in January 2011. Once again, I'll have updates about that on my blog as soon as I have any information to report.
0: Okay. And uh, you have books that are available, right? Can Where can they go get your books?
2: Right now, I think my most recent book, uh, Liberty Eclipse, is sold out. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm working on, on two or three different book projects right now. One of them is... Well, I've got a real penchant for apocalyptic titles. Uh, my current book is tentatively titled uh, The Blood did Tide. And it's about, unfortunately, the the rise of a certain type of totalitarian or quasi-totalitarian conservatism. And that's most likely going to be my uh, next book, and I'll have details about that on my
1: blog pretty soon.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll look forward to talking about it here. I feel wanna... good,
1: good type of pick-me-up. <laughs> that's yeah. right, like we're used to here. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: Brother Will, thank you so much for your testimony of being a servant of Christ and being faithful. Listeners, I've got one request for you. you. Um, Please go get any kind of materials that Will has. Just so, buy it all. Support, supportive <laughs> ministry. You'll be doing Dr. Future and Tom a big favor if you would do that. And, uh, Brother Will, thank you for, for spending time with us. Re-energize you so yourself. Much. And if you don't mind, I'd really like to have you back uh, to pick up where we left off because mm-hmm. I want to make this sort of a, a multi-part set that people have. I can't think anything more important for our Christian audience is to get their thinking sorted out on this very important matter.
2: I appreciate that, and thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us, and God bless. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And, Tom, boy, how I love government bionic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, government has its place. Uh, actually, this is something... Taking out the
1: trash and stuff, yeah.
0: This is something we didn't get into, but... Um, it appears, what I can see from Scripture, is that the Lord really wanted more of an agrarian lifestyle, mm-hmm. where, where they went out and spread out over the whole earth, and, and basically he had small families and clans, you know, with mm-hmm. their stuff. But people kept insisting on congregating together, mm-hmm. so then they could form tyrants, mm-hmm. and their tyrant could maybe beat up somebody else's tyrant. But none of that seemed to me to be part of God's plan, mm-hmm. that I can tell. So instead of replenishing, they built a tower, they stayed together, God separated them, then they started forming these groups, them the same problem, you mm-hmm. know. And then even when he set apart these other people, mm-hmm. you know, then what do they do? They want a king. They want to go repli- replicate mm-hmm. what the pagans did, so. Well,
1: uh, fortunately, we do have a, a, a great government. Gosh, I just can't get over how awesome our government is with the TSA body scanners. And, yeah, ladies and gentlemen,
0: yeah. he's been fixated on the TSA body scanners, so. Just be prepared. I'm next sorry.
1: Week. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm very frustrated by it. I know that it's not entirely on topic. Although in Just in in context with like government and abuses of power, I can't think of any more that is more sublime.
0: I prophesy from foreshadowing that we will hear a body scanner story from you next week in tomorrow's tremors. There but you go. What they'll hear from right now is Murphy can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. We gotta go. Okay. Come back next week for tomorrow's tremor stories. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Bye bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake,
1: quake.